The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I am a sandal maker from the poorest quarter of the city. The laziest, you mean? Speak, my friend. What is your business with the sages? I am in need of assistance. My sandal shop is failing. I can no longer feed my family. Same old song. My wife and her mother, my five children, the baby. That's seven employees. Eight if you count the infant. How can your shop be failing? You're not paying them, are you? My mother-in-law is ill. My children are very young. Don't tell me none of them are working. Ignorant, lobeless fools. Exploitation begins at home. Exploitation begins at home. Exploitation begins at home. Exploitation begins at home. I understand my mistake, and I promise to begin exploiting my family before the end of the day. But could I have some food and, and some medicine? Ha! Huh? Uh. Until my business improves. You shall have something far more valuable. One copy of the rules of acquisition. Chief is finding possible. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, October 3rd, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, where later in the show, Robert, I understand you're going to be talking about complacency under tyranny and how people just seem to adapt to it when it arrives, and uh, something yes. you call sticks and stones. Sounds yeah, like the humble attack, yeah. Okay. sticks and stones. Well, in my first half here, I'm going to be talking about uh, this floating abstraction that no one seems to understand. It's called capitalism. Got into an interesting debate this week, and that's what the largest part of my section of the show today is. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation. Or, as always, email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Got into an interesting conversation. I think you knew, know a little bit about it, Robert. Yeah, I heard a bit of it. Uh, this is regarding Tom McInerney, who's an investment advisor with World Source Securities, Inc. I happened to tune into the middle of a conversation he was having with CJBK's Andy Utman about his financial assessment of the budgetary crisis in the United States. And I wasn't really hearing anything too controversial. But then he went on what I thought was a completely uncalled for and kind of unjustifiable attack on capitalism, explicitly using that word, and in favor of socialism. Quote, socialism is a reality, and that's a good thing. And quote, McInerney then blamed extreme right-wing capitalists in the Republican Party as being responsible for the American cash crisis. And he says, what's wrong with Obamacare? It works just like insurance. Well, just like, but isn't. You know, killing someone in self-defense is, well, just like killing someone for fun, isn't it? <laughs> it's just like. Anyways. So whenever I hear blasphemy in public, I have to call in to address it. So I phoned in, as is, my sworn, <laughs> as, as is my sworn duty, in the defense of moral capitalism. And here was the main points I made when I called in. First of all, I said I couldn't disagree more with Tom 
than with what he said about socialism and capitalism. I agreed with Tom that socialism is a reality, but I disagreed with his assertion that socialism is a good thing. It is morally wrong, I said. I pointed out how the complaints and filibustering of the so-called extreme right-wing capitalists in the Republican Party south of the border are no way in no way responsible for the U.S. fiscal bankruptcy. It's the spending of the so-called socialists that Tom was so in favor of what's causing what will be a huge disaster in North America. And to suggest that socialized medicine is the same as health insurance is an absurdity. It just isn't. It, that disobeys the whole law of identity right there. It's not even the same thing in definition. Health insurance is based on a voluntary system of premiums where the premiums cover all the costs. The premiums are calculated on actuarial data. Nothing socialist works that way. Not our pension plan, not our health care system. It's all based simply on robbing Peter to pay Paul today in the hopes that you've got enough Peters tomorrow to cover all the Pauls that are going to be on this, which is nothing more than a huge Ponzi scheme. It always has been, always will be. And, you know, it's the Ponzi scheme that Tom is supporting. The market, you know, keeps going up each... The markets keep going up each time. It hasn't, the markets, markets can do well in bad times, let's put it that way. If you're in the right investment, you can still make money. That's not what this is about. I also refer to Ted Wernham's contention that democracies no, lo no longer serves the public once the public is allowed to spend the public's purse. And that's the story of the fall of the Roman Empire, Europe's whole socialist history, how Germany started two world wars over its socialism because they pretty well bankrupt themselves each time. And as long as they can keep inflating the currency, people will tolerate the lowering standard of living to an alarming degree. I think that's what you're going to be getting into a little later, aren't you? Yes. And so I said, you know, look around the world where, where the people have accepted this dismal standard of living all in the name of this magic thing that amounts to getting something for nothing. Now, what really will determine our rate of standard of living is the rate of inflation and how fast they, they inflate the currency. I think that's the big thing now. I also mentioned that China holds a lot of U.S. currency and American debt, and they wouldn't be very happy about us inflating its you know, currency to pay off its debt in devalued dollars, as has been a historical practice and often a prelude to a conflict. Now, what was interesting, interesting too, I got a, an email following our debate uh, from London City Councilor, past London City Councilor Ted Wernham, who's now with Wernham Wealth Management, actually thanking me for the comments I made and uh, referring, of course, to my referencing him on the issue of democracy. But he sent me some very sobering stuff on the American debt to China. And it almost makes what I'm going to be saying today somehow pale in comparison. I think that's something we're going to have to follow up on a future show. But after I was on, and this is another interesting comment, caller after me, his name was Glenn, and he suggested that uh, the chicken littles who think the sky is falling have been around for years and years, and then he cited past predictions of so-called financial collapses that never occurred. He said the U.S. government in the last 35 years has had 17 shutdowns. True. Five under Carter, you know, eight under Reagan, etc. And they all seem to sail right by them. And he says, of course, he pointed out the Democrats caused most of those shutdowns. He says it's not doom and gloom. It's basically like resetting the counter. Mm. Mm. <laughs> That's what I did. Yeah. He called this process a continuing revolution. And he said the chicken littles are all saying the sky is falling, and I've never seen such nonsense, he said. But neither I nor anyone else suggested the sky was falling, only that the pie will keep shrinking if the government keeps spending the way that it is. Then get this. 
In his conclusion to his call, Glenn says, If they do not shut down the train wreck, which is going to be Obamacare, they are literally going to be gone. Their money will be toilet paper. I'm going, huh? Isn't he screaming the sky is falling? Isn't, isn't he doing the same thing? So what, the, what was he thinking about? He was thinking about inflation. He's saying, well, inflation's no problem, which is false. You don't feel it right away, and you learn to live with it. It right? requires a, a lower standard of living. That's what inflation gives That's you. That's right. But so far, you know, all I've been doing is setting up my subject of my rant today about Tom McInerney. He actually called back after I called to defend himself against my, my comments. I didn't get a chance to respond to him in turn, so that's what I'm doing here now. And um, not sure how to handle this, because what Tom said was so surprising to me and so wrong. <laughs> it was like untangling a Gordian knot, I kid you not. So he, write, he says, I think I'll read his comments first and then go back. Um, He says, Bob's comments were kind of alarming to me. I don't know if Bob knows what I do for a living. I'm certainly one of the biggest supporters of the free enterprise system. When I'm talking about socialism, I'm talking about small s socialism and small c capitalism. Yeah, don't worry about that yet. The big C capitalism that Bob seems to be speaking of, the idea that the market can determine everything and that the market should be left to its own devices, is largely what caused the 2008 crisis. See, my belief is what caused that. My belief is not even in action. How could just my belief cause that when it's not even happening? We had unregulated financial institutions essentially doing what they wanted with their depositors' money in the U.S., he says. And then he says, uh, every aspect of any form of insurance is essentially a social contract, whether it's car insurance, life insurance, home insurance. Health insurance should be no different. Everyone pays into the pot so that there's a pot to take out of. And the other point I wanted to make, he says, was that having a kind of social safety net, whether it's here or in the U.S., actually supports entrepreneurship, in my opinion, because you're able to go out and take a risk and start a business, do something daring, knowing that there's a social safety net, a level below which you won't fall. And he says the idea of Obamacare is simply saying to people it's the law that you have to have some form of health insurance if you're going to use the health insurance system. To say that I'm somehow saying that capitalism is bad and that free enterprise is bad is completely off the mark. I think both of those areas are supported by a good social safety net and by regulation. Without government regulation, I'm sorry, Bob, but without government regulation, the people will take advantage of other people. Without question, more Americans will get better health care under Obamacare. It's the same program that was brought into Massachusetts under Mitt Romney. It's the exact same type of program saying that the only way this can work is that everybody is compelled to belong. Everyone is compelled to carry insurance. That's the only way it can work. Otherwise, the only people who will buy insurance are the people who need coverage, and that'll never work. Ask any insurance company. It's only the people who are going to buy life insurance, or or if the only people who are going to buy life insurance are the people who knew they were close to death's door, the program wouldn't work very well. And that was Tom's defense of, or his his rebuttal to, to my comments, nothing of which addressed what I had to say. But here's what I have to say in response. He says he's a big supporter of free enterprise, and I, I can't agree with that for a minute, not from what he just said there and what he said before. First of all, the free and free enterprise means free from coercion. It means free from fraud, and it means free from theft. That's the essence and distinction of capitalism versus every other collectivist delusion. Capitalism represents a separation of state and economics, not an elimination of government. 
Under capitalism, the government is the referee, and it's the government's job to keep the market free of coercion. Under socialism, it's exactly the opposite. The government is a key player in the game of economics, and its role is to destroy and eliminate consensual relationships and replace them with forced relationships. This is immoral in every way you can think about it. And by immoral, I mean it is destructive and it's value-destroying. That's what it does. As soon as you've got that, you might as well kiss the country goodbye. And he says, when I'm talking about big, you know, small S socialism and small C capitalism, what the hell is that? Usually when we refer to big C or uh, capital letter, it means that there's a political party involved. That's it. That's exactly so what he's thinking. What is that? that? That doesn't make any sense. There's no such thing as a small S socialism or yeah. capital S socialism. What is that? It's, it's what I call sheer blather. Mindless, meaningless, which is its intention, by yes, the way, to indeed. make an irrational statement like that. He's literally saying that three is eight. Three with a small T and eight with a small E, <laughs> right? Yeah, Socialism and capitalism are completely opposite concepts, Tom. Get that straight. That's why we have different words for them, just like we have a different number to represent different values. Because words do represent values, just like numbers do. You can't mix them. You can't say a three is a four. Try, try making any mathematical construct work if you just can make up all the definitions as you go along. You can't do it. That's what's really sad about this situation is that you have to define the term capitalism and socialism to a, an investment advisor Well, in this country. There's the problem in this country right there, is that people who tout the free enterprise system so-called don't have a word clue one as to what capitalism is. Well, that's on, again, the philosophical and political level. On the business level, he may be very good at what he does. Oh, he just sees okay. government as just another right. player in the economy. That's right. And he has to work in that. And that, that that's totally understandable. That's a different thing. But he stepped out of his bounds when he starts well, talking about capitalism. Uh, you know, there is no big C capitalism. It's small C all the way unless it's the first word in a sentence, okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, the other thing is the market. He keeps talking about the market. Like, we can just, you know, we let the market do it. I, I, it drives me nuts. There's a floating abstraction the market doesn't mean a thing it is not a thing it is a given number of individuals who choose to be part of the market for example if you're in the market for cars then you choose to be in the market for cars it's not a big nebulous market for blankets and everything else in the world and you choose to be there when you're in the market for housing it's because you choose to be there now you might have to be there because you're looking for a house but that doesn't change that fact there is no one market except in the greater context of socialism, capitalism, and versus, you know, those types of systems. Any given market includes buyers and sellers, producers and consumers. When Tom criticizes the market determining everything, we're talking about, one, individual consumers making their own choices about what they want to buy and from whom. Two, individual producers making their own choices and taking their own risks about what they want to make or produce, and at what price. This is the most important issue because it enables consent and negotiation. That's the part everybody wants to get rid of. And he says every, he says every aspect of any form of insurance is, a, is an, an essential social contract. Only if it's voluntary. You can't have an involuntary contract. That's a contradiction in terms. I'm surprised you haven't taken on that word social contract. Uh, what is a social contract and how does it differ from a contract? It, it means it's not a contract. Right. Always, 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 always. A contract at the point of a gun is a contradiction in terms. All these are terms used to justify the use of physical force against people. 
Tom might not realize it, but that's what he's doing. doesn't matter whether it's car insurance, life insurance, home insurance. He says health insurance should be no different. Well, I agree it shouldn't be. But forced health insurance is different than life insurance and home insurance and car insurance, by the way, which is not coerced as a fact. It's coer- it, it's, you, you have to pay it as a, as a condition of driving on someone else's property. That's a whole different yes. thing. And, of course, everyone pays into the pot, so there's a pot to take out of. But that idea, as described by Tom, is simply what most of us would call private insurance. Private meaning voluntary. That's what that word means. But Tom is wa- wants involuntary insurance. It's an open invitation to waste, to corruption, and actual lack of ultimate coverage, which is now the case as we see with our health care, where everything's being cut back. Rationing. With no n- rationing, no-fault auto insurance in Ontario, which has given us the highest rates for the least amount of coverage. It simply doesn't work that way. You know, you can even listen to Dr. Tom Dorman. Remember, he, we, he, he spoke here at the university um, at the ISIL conference, and he's a doctor who practiced in Britain, Canada, and the U.S. He doesn't like insurance at all, not even private. He says it messes with your health care, and the insurance companies get to make decisions for you just like the government will. That does not change. And, you know, he's also saying that he wants to talk about the social safety net. Now he's not talking about health care anymore. He's talking about protecting people from the risk of business. And if you do that, you're killing the capitalist system because the capitalist system is supposed to allow for failure, which is separate from what I think he's talking about. He's just talking about basic welfare and a bottom line. Again, the key to the success of capitalism is the failing of businesses and capital r- capitalist risks that don't work out. Now... Um, so he says to say that I'm somehow saying that capitalism is bad and free enterprise is bad is completely off the mark. Well, Tom, name one good thing you've said about capitalism and free enterprise in any of this. Not one, other than saying that you support them. Oh, I support them, but you don't. You know, um, he says without government regulation, people will take advantage of other people. Does he read the newspapers? <laughs> Isn't it the other way around? Regulation is the way people take advantage of you. The only way people can take advantage of people is through force and fraud. And that's what he's advocating, a system of force and fraud. And he says, without question, more Americans will get better health care under Obamacare. Well, then clearly, Tom, you're saying that capitalism doesn't work. How can you say that if, he says, if he's a capitalist supporter? He's saying, if you can't say that in the same sentence. Then, of course, he says the only way it works is we've all got to be compelled to buy insurance. Well, I'm sorry, now you've crossed the moral line. As capitalist Ayn Rand so clearly drew it, morality ends where a gun begins. You know, this is so wrong, I don't even know how to quite untangle this statement. And he says, if the only people that are going to buy life insurance are people who knew they were close to death's door, the program wouldn't work very well. Actually, yes, it does work very well. Because the insurance company will take that condition into account and charge a premium accordingly, based on the risk involved. If the risk is too high, the company will turn it down. If the price is too high, the insurance consumer will turn it down. But that's not how people normally buy insurance, because, of course, everybody understands that the idea is to buy early to get the lowest premium. That's how it works, right? That's how you get the biggest bang for your buck. 
But government health insurance isn't even insurance at all. It's free health care, no deduction, single-payer system, no alternatives. doesn't protect only against catastrophic financial loss, which is the nor normal purpose of insurance, and which is why real insurance can have really low premium rates if it's privately and properly administered. But it's free medicine right across the board for first dollar. It's like buying your car insurance and they cover your ongoing gas expenses to cover your car. Can you imagine, how long would the, that car insurance company last? And that is what makes it very different from if, government insurance. If that car insurance company can print money, it'll last a fair amount of time. That's right. <laughs> So I want to say to Tom, you know, it ain't so much what people don't know that gets them into trouble. It's what they do know that just ain't so. And it's so true with all of what he said here. And let me say also that the argument from intimidation, which is how Tom started, you know, um, is no way to start a defense. I do indeed know what Tom does for a living. It's also know? the argument from authority. Yes. Yes. Don't, don't, don't you know who I am? I mean, if I played the intimidation card, I could start my rebuttal with, uh, maybe Tom doesn't know what I do for more than just a living. So there, I win, right? <laughs> so I guess if Tom was a bricklayer and I was a plumber, our having the same discussion would have no validity, even if the facts and logic we used coincided with reality. I guess we'd have to find someone in authority to approve our conversation. It's just bizarre. Um... You know, on Tuesday I heard Obama himself blaming the Republicans for what was no more than an ideological crusade against uh, Obamacare, which of course is a clever way of implying that Obamacare is not socialism and therefore not ideological, when in fact that's all it is. The ideology of socialism, as just described by Free Enterprise supporter Tom McInerney, both, Ob both Obama and McInerney agree that the right-wing capitalist ideological crusade by the Republicans has been fueled and instigated by the so-called Tea Party. Can you believe it? Mm. So is it any wonder that people are so confused? Is it any wonder that nobody seems to have any answers or maybe even the right questions? Um, you know, stick to what you do best, Tom, investment advising, until you come to understand the clear meaning of capitalism with both a small and large C, clear for, you know, large C, capital C, capitalism, large C, small C. I'm just having a little fun. Let's take a break and we'll be back and continue the conversation. The leg injury isn't all I'm picking up. He's got some kind of systemic disease. It's a chromoviral infection. We have 12 cases down here. He's in the final stage. Is there an established treatment? Cytoglobin injections. These scans don't show any cytoglobin in his bloodstream. He hasn't been given any. Why not? He doesn't have a high enough TC. TC? What's that? Ah, there you are. I'm happy to report that I've acquired your program from Gar. Please come with me. I will not. May I remind you I'm being illegally detained? Or hasn't the rule of law reached this society yet? We follow the allocator's rules. And it's determined that your services are required on level blue. Please, doctor, the allocator knows which patients need help the most. Level blue is your critical care area, I presume. Level blue is the area where it's most critical that we provide excellent care. wonder what happens to all those people who lose their at those meetings 
Uh, they go right from the town hall to the local television studio, where they become our nation's latest experts on health care reform. You brought a loaded gun. Was your gun loaded today? Uh, wow. Who would be silly enough to carry an unloaded firearm? I guess that's why I'm silly. One woman, one woman at Arlen Specter's latest death match asked such an emotionally charged question, she became Sean Hannity's new Joe the Plumber. This is about the systematic dismantling of this country. You have awakened the sleeping giant. We are tired of this. This is why everybody in this room is so ticked off. I don't want this country turning into Russia, turning into a socialized country. Okay, well, good for you. I think that's incredibly hyperbolic fear, but, but you got to voice... <laughs> You got to voice your question in a, in a calm way to your senator. You, you can't argue with that. Katie, were you happy with the answer that you got from the senator today? Honestly, after I asked the question, I was so just... I don't know. I, I didn't hear half of what he said, to be honest with you. Great. Welcome to Fox. Can you start on Monday? We'll be right back. <laughs> that was funny. You know, last week we heard Ann Coulter explaining how she couldn't live without access to Fox TV. This week we, this week we hear from John Stewart, who seems to have another opinion on the fact. Um, you know, messing with prices in the marketplace, a lot of people don't seem to understand how what you're doing when you do that and trying to control prices is evading reality. One writer who apparently understands that is the writer of a book that I've already covered on this uh, show before and it's from the politically incorrect guide to socialism written by Kevin Williamson of the National Review and in his epilogue which I hadn't read before until last night I was amazed the title was the price is metaphysically right what a title and he writes quote prices are not mere intersections of supply and demand prices are the epistemological movers and shakers of community life transporting knowledge instantly and without friction, coordinating the actions of a shipyard in Virginia with those of a steel mill in China, directing global flows of capital, letting clueless executives in Atlanta know that the new Coke is a fiasco. Coke, Coke's brain trust said X, but prices said not X. The price was right. Sounds like Isabel Patterson. Or Milton Friedman, even, mm -hmm. who talked a lot about the importance of prices being a communicator. That's why when you mess with prices, you're, in effect, practicing economic censorship. You're, you're hiding the true value of something from somebody. And that's often what people are doing on purpose, because they don't want you to know something's valuable while they hog it up. And so he says prices are, among other things, a snapshot of the relationship between what producers are selling and what consumers want. The great problem facing central planning regimes is that there's no prices to facilitate communication between producers and consumers. Fear is fear the man who says he will make things rational by ignoring reality. Ignoring prices is ignoring reality. Price problems are basic to socialism. In fact, there is no planning of prices. It seems entirely justified, therefore, to use central determination rather than planning of prices. In the market, prices go up and down. Under socialism, the only direction they're allowed to move is downward, for political reasons. Supply and demand be damned. Rather than bring price transparency to health care, we're going full tilt boogie in the opposite direction, specifically by insisting that insurance companies be barred from putting real prices on pre-existing conditions. But you cannot insure against something that has already happened. 
To pretend otherwise dumps the whole metaphysical can of worms all over the insurance space-time continuum. This guy writes like me. Landing us in an alternative universe where insurance equals not insurance. Literally, Tom Tom's argument, right? It's more of an epistemological argument than metaphysical. It is, and it's that's an what he's saying. Of terms. Right, but by but by avoiding the the, the epistemological, you you miss the reality of it, right? Mm -hmm. That's how you get there. He says we could cloak the effects of rising house prices for a long time, about 60 years as it turned out, through all sorts of schemes including the mortgage interest tax deduction, artificially low interest rates, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac shenanigans. This is what Tom was calling the marketplace, which it isn't. Mortgages, like all loans, entail risk, and risk has a price too. But we managed to find a way around that, creating a federally charted cartel of credit rating agencies. Moody's, Standards & Poor, Fitch, that mindlessly applied the same formula over and over, slapping AAA ratings on securities. And it was the AAA rating, not the underlying security, that determined the price that banks and other investors were putting on the risk. In other words, I'm saying, you know, Tom McInerney was not only blaming the victim for causing the financial disaster, but supporting the actions of the perpetrator of the federally regulated and supported Ponzi schemes. That's where the regulation occurs, is in the, is in the Ponzi scheme. And he writes, the cartel was a favorite tool of such noted national socialist planners as Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler, who understood that fewer players in the marketplace meant higher profits, encouraging a level of moral and political elasticity on the part of the cartel bosses, and fewer entities over which to exercise brute force control when necessary. It was Caligula who once wished, oh, if only all Rome had but one neck, that he might break it. We use these cartels to inflate the prices of houses, to artificially depress the price of mortgages, and to cloak the price of the risks attached to doing so. But prices are not to be denied forever. The price of housing turned around back towards its normal, non-politically adjusted level, taking the price of mortgage-backed securities with it, and sending the cost of borrowing conversely through the roof. Boom. Financial meltdown. Turned out there was a lot of AAA toilet paper in our sausage, he writes. The lesson, don't mess with prices. Lowering health care costs will require consumers to comparison shop between providers, insurers, doctors, hospitals, and specialists. We cannot make intelligent reforms without real prices because we are blind without them. Let him with ears hear. Hear, hear. That's what I have to say to that. That's my bit. Anything to add on that there, Robert? Covered it pretty well, Bob. Okay, I think you're going to continue now on what, coming after this break? Well, actually, something that Tom McInerney said as well about his complacency with socialism being reality. Okay, going right, right now, we're going to be hearing from a little clip from a look at capitalism, which was produced, believe it or not, back in 1955 by the National Education Workshop in Arkansas. And we've played clips from this before. And, uh, well, here's another one, just interesting. We'll be back. Have you ever seen one of the early automobiles manufactured in America? It was really something to behold. When it was manufactured, only a few wealthy people could own an automobile. And even for them, it was likely to break down on any 10-mile trip. Today, there are more automobiles in America than there are families. And almost every family owns one. Competition, the free market, brought this about. Henry Ford was determined to outstrip other manufacturers. He went after the mass market with his low-price Model T, produced with his remarkable mass production techniques. 
He won the low price market, but not for long. Others competed, and competed so well that the product continued constantly to improve. What competition in the free market has done in the production of automobiles, it has done for thousands of other things. With private ownership of property, the profit motive, and the competitive free market, American capitalism produces more wealth than the next 10 nations all combined. You and I benefit tremendously because of our great productive system, American capitalism. Our individual efforts bring us rewards higher than those realized by any people on the earth. So let's remember these pillars of freedom and progress when we hear or see the socialist or the communist trying openly or secretly to undermine them. These factors can be destroyed through subversion or through our own short-sightedness or apathy in defending them. Surely all of us can feel gratitude and pride toward American capitalism. Its record of improving human welfare is unmatched in all history. Next week, we shall examine American capitalism's widespread distribution of wealth. Until then, class dismissed. Clinton family was front and center at his global initiative this week, which has kept the buzz about Hillary in 2016 a little high for President Clinton's comfort. He did his best to tamp it down in our interview, but opened up about possible threats to another run and his biggest lessons from the loss last time. I was really struck by something Lindsey Graham said uh, the other day. He said, from now on, after Tuesday's meeting, I'm going to call it Clinton care. If it's a huge success, Hillary Clinton will win the presidency. If it's the failure I think it's going to be, then she needs to own the result of uh, embracing this bill. How worried are you about that for 2016? Not at all. Not at all. There are some similarities in his bill and the one we proposed. His bill's already produced a lot of good results. Look, they are desperate for this bill to fail. Because if it's not a failure, everything they've been telling us since... 1980, that government's bad, it's wrong. They so badly wanted to but fail. So I've never Americans. seen a time. Can you remember a time in your lifetime when a major political party was just sitting around begging for America to fail? I don't know what's going to happen, but, but I'll be shocked if it fails. I just think that when all these dire predictions don't come out, if they don't, I believe that pretty soon, within the next several years, this will be like Medicare and Medicaid, and it'll be a normal part of our life, and people will be glad it's there. And a big plus the next election. Yeah. And especially that last part where Clinton says and confirms that it'd be a big plus next election. That's well, the real intent of the whole thing, is getting reelected for these people. Well, then obviously the people want it, Robert. End of story. Democracy. Yeah, what a shame. It's going to be a self-destroyer, isn't it? What a shame. That's actually what I'm going to be talking about this mm -hmm. next uh, 15 minutes or so, is how people are authors of their own doom and destruction. Remember when Tom McInerney said, socialism is reality, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. He's basically accepted his fate. He's living in a socialist world, and he's basically saying, we should all rally around what exists 
right now today and don't buck the system work within it it's normal just like bill clinton said um after all these dire predictions are gone by the wayside people will find out that this is just going to be a normal thing like medicare and medicaid and in canada we have the uh, socialist health care system we have and people think that it's normal that it always existed they have no idea that it was actually implemented back in 1967. you know what else is normal their reaction to it, to act and talk just like that. You can yes. read history book after history book. The whole German culture in leading up to Hitler, people talked exactly like that. Oh, it's great. Things are going great. Isn't it odd that here we are talking about Obamacare, insurance, capitalism, socialism, and we're always going back to the most extreme examples of that system, which is Hitler. Because he started it all. He and started it all. It's, and we're Mussolini, still suffering from it. Mussolini, Stalin, another kind of uh, socialism, communism. Uh, uh, Hitler was the National Socialist Party. Yes, we got to go back to Hitler because he is the epitome of where this system is going to go. And you said it yourself when you inflate the currency, what happens after that? Conflict. Armed conflict. Eventually, somewhere. Yeah when you try to uh, pay off your uh, foreign debtors. So where does this, uh, when does tyranny become normal? How far are, are people willing to go to trade their freedom for security, to have stability over unpredictability, or, or to have normalcy over variety? I think we're all familiar with the story of the frog in the pot. Um, mm -hmm. I, we've probably mentioned it on the show before, but just briefly, put a frog in a pot of boiling water and he'll jump out. Put a frog in a pot of warm water and then gradually raise the temperature to boiling and it'll sit in the pot of water until it cooks and dies. We're the frogs. What President Clinton was expressing in that clip, that was an interview, by the way, on ABC with George Stephanopoulos, um, was that the government is turning up the heat. After a time, even conditions considered unlivable and undurable decades ago will seem like normal. It's this principle of Fabians, Fabianism, that socialists like Clinton, Bush, Obama, and every president and prime minister have been employing since our respective countries began. This begs the question, though, how far are people willing to go? How much pain are they willing to endure? How much taxation is enough before they realize that they're the frogs in a pot of boiling water? Then it's too late. And the answer lies in history, and the answer is not very hopeful. All one has to do is look, as I said before, to the people of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, communist Albania, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, or any of the Arab Muslim states, Somalia, Uganda, or any number of failed despotic states which have existed or still do exist, to see that people are quite willing to offer themselves up, body and soul, before the breaking point is reached. With the Soviet Union, it was over 70 years, or three generations before the leadership gave in to the inevitable collapse. After tens of millions of deaths and a population of hundreds of millions living in abject poverty, the leadership finally realized their hopeless situation and gave up. The thing to note is that it was the leadership which came to its senses, not necessarily the masses. They were complacent in their normalcy. To this day, there are millions of Russians who pine for the leadership of the general secretaries of the Communist Party. To this day, there are communists in Russia trying to turn back the clock to the day when every minute of every day was controlled and dictated by a central authority. There was security. There was predictability. There was, as President Clinton says, normalcy. Fabian socialism. 
Fabian communism, Fabian slavery, is a progressive, slow devolution of society from a free capitalist society to a controlled, regulated society, similar to what's been achieved in Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union and their ilk, but without the violent revolution. These states were built on violence. Fabianism is taking that idea and says, we don't have to have the revolutions. Let's do this just slowly so that turn up the pot water slowly so that we can get socialism without revolution. It's a slow process of the servitude of the individual to the collective, to the individual to the supreme leader. In Canada, we have our own Fabian society. Didn't know. I wonder how many people know this, that we have a society called the Douglas Caldwell Foundation. I've never heard of that. Yeah. It should come as no surprise that the Douglas Colwell Foundation has charitable status, too, with donations being tax-deductible. No surprise there. The foundation is named after Tommy Douglas, the first federal leader of the, the uh, New Democratic Party, and M.J. Coldwell, the leader of the NDP's uh, predecessor, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. Both of these men advocated the subjugation of the individual to the collective, the same mantra of socialist Nazi Germany and socialist Russia, their legacy lives on in the NDP and in the unionist movement in Canada, which preaches the same principles of socialism as that of Hitler and Stalin. There's no difference. There really is no difference. If you look, uh, read the ominous parallels by uh, Dr. Leonard Peikoff, and you will see how both societies here today in the West parallel the society leading up to Nazi Germany. They're the same. They're advocating the impotence of the individual to the power of the state. The most effective tool of Fabianism is the willingness of people to accept the status quo. Normalcy must be maintained. People hate change, so it must be gradual, slow, and progressive. Hence the use of the word progressive in the progressive conservative parties throughout the country. Contrary to what you might think, while the NDP may be the standard barrier bearers for Fabian socialism, it is the progressive conservative parties which have brought about the greatest movements towards socialism in Canada and the United States. In the United States, it's the Republican Party which has implemented the most socialist policies and has spent the most and raised the taxes the most. Again, contrary to what people might think. So for President Clinton to express that the people of the United States will come to accept Obamacare as normal comes as just a slight surprise. Typically such a blatant expression of the intent of Fabian socialists, it's couched in a more subtle language. Typically socialists like Clinton would stick to the priority line of extolling the so-called virtues of socialist measures. Quote, think of the children, the poor, the hungry, unquote while attacking any opponents as uncaring, unfeeling, greedy monsters, capitalists, businessmen. Also funny, because when I, when I defend capitalism, those are the very people I think of. The poor and the hungry, and mostly my kids, yes. and my grandkids in the future. Because capitalism I know actually this isn't is the that's best system that there is. Yeah, and if, and if they don't have the, the, the opportunity in life that even I had, even though it was decreasing as time went with this damn socialism we've got in this country. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many people have told me that they regret emigrating here now. Yes. And I sit there and go, holy cow, you know, what are you saying? There's actually people now leaving the United States well, and burning their passports to live in other countries. Including Canada. Some of them are coming back here, yes. right? Because they're looking for the least degree of government intervention yes. in socialism, right? It's the free and, marketplace of countries, I guess. Right. Well, <laughs> you wait till the border... Border patrols go up again. Yes. But maybe their budgets will run out first. Mm. 
Back to Clinton, though. He's a little off his game in that interview, perhaps due to his ill health and age. Who knows? We have this elder icon of the benevolent society, the benevolent slavery. Go off script and tell it like it really is. The masses will come to accept the latest form of servitude like they have the previous forms of servitude. In this case, Medicare and Medicaid is what he's saying. At the heart of Fabianism are two mechanisms of the corrupt human psyche. Greed, the desire to get something for nothing, and security, the feeling that change is bad and unpredictability must be avoided at all costs. Who wants to pay for their medical insurance or immediate medical expenses when they can force somebody else to pay? Who wants to risk an uncertain medical future when the government is willing to smooth out the highs and lows of medical uncertainty with a, as you said, Bob, a Ponzi scheme of medical insurance? Right. Yes, and there's nothing wrong with wanting security. <laughs> it's how you get it. Uh, yeah, not at the right. end of a gun, though. Right. Clinton was quite right, quite right when mm -hmm. he said that Americans will come to embrace Obamacare and think of it as normal. They will. Just as they did the income tax, the violation of the rights of self-defense, or the millions of other bureaucratic regulations which could land them in jail for years. They come to accept them as normal. To give you an example in reverse. Sunday shopping. Yes. When we, when we campaigned against Sunday shopping, we were told it was going to be the end of the world. The economy yep. would collapse. Nothing would work anymore. <laughs> and now people can't do without <laughs> no, it. No. <laughs> but that was, a, that was a move in the right direction, not in the wrong direction. Yes, the very few. Americans like Canadians have come to accept the very programs promoted by Hitler and Stalin as being uniquely American or Canadian. Rationing of health care has become normal for Canadians, and it will be normal for Americans. The theft of half our income has become so normal, and in the future, as tax rates rise, we will accept as normal the theft of 60%, 70%, 80%, even 90% of our income until one day Stalin's dream of an egalitarian, classless society is achieved through the complacency of its masses. It won't be achieved by the means he sought, revolution, but by the means of progressive conservatives, the liberals, the New Democrats, the Republicans, and the Democrats through a slow and gradual Fabian shift from individual freedom to collective slavery. We have demonstrated that we are quite willing to accept collectivism over individual freedom, leadership over independence. So if any of you on the right are waiting for the apocalypse of doom to descend upon us overnight, forget it. Our death will be slow and accepted willingly. We're going to break and have a clip now from an old movie called... The Mortal Storm mm -hmm. with Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Back right after this. Oh, Mr. Warner. Well, Hello, well, Martin. How Glad are to see you. you. Good you remember Mr. Warner, my old teacher? Certainly I do. Yeah, he's teaching your younger brother, Rudy, now. Rudy huh? thinks the world of you, Mr. Warner. So, there's, there's Hall. What's he going to think? Yeah. How's your mother? Fine, thank you. She asked about you several times. Thank you. Heil Hitler. Heil Hitler. Heil Hitler. Heil Hitler. Heil Hitler. Heil Hitler, Mr. Warner. Good evening. Mr. Werner, won't you sit down with us? Thank you. My dinner's waiting at my usual table. Perhaps later. All right, folks. How about those songs, huh? Come on, name your choice. What'll it be? Good morning, beautiful Miller girl. I'll name a song. A song that every loyal German man and woman will sing with high hearts. A glorious song of a new Germany.
It's an insult. Are you dumb? Or don't you like our glorious song? He's asking for trouble. I beg your pardon, but surely a man is free to sing or not as he pleases. I don't want to hear any excuses from you. I want to hear you sing. Understand? I'm telling you to sing. No. Sing. Take it easy, Paul. This man's a friend of mine. Oh. Birds of a feather, eh? Well, if you know what's good for you, Martin Brightney, he'll keep you snoot out of this. Don't concern yourself, please. I'm leaving. Come on, Mr. Warner. Let him go. Let him go. Thank you, Martin. All right. Thank you very much. I'm sorry. I should think you would be. Getting up from our table to brawl with the top man in the party. Eric, I said I was sorry. That old chap's been decent to me. I can't stand by and see him bully. Look here, Martin. We've been friends for years, but I think it's time we had an understanding about this. Now, Fritz, I'll I... do the talking. We're in a state of revolution. If we follow the will of our leader, it will be a bloodless one. I follow it. And I. And I. I hope soon to have a share in enforcing it. I see anyone who opposes it as an enemy of his country. And I'm not willing to be seen in his company. Fritz, you know, I persuaded Martin to come. I said Keep out of this, Freya. It's no woman's business. We want to know where you stand. We want to know whether you're going to join the party and work for Germany, or herd with a pacifist vermin we're going to stamp out. We want to know right now. I'd like to know right now, too. <laughs> what if we said Hitler was evil? That's an ad hominem attack on somebody, isn't it? You're casting a moral judgment on a man. He was evil. Unless now, you're not I saying knew. his ideas were evil, but he was evil. It's very easy okay. for someone to use ad hominem attacks to try and win an argument. And in general, I try to refrain from attacking the person rather than the central point of an argument. But I'm only human. Sometimes I fail and name-calling comes out. But there comes a time when passing moral judgment on a person becomes not only acceptable but absolutely necessary Hitler was evil the ideas of socialism which Hitler espoused have been the source of so much death and misery but didn't he have a right to his opinion <laughs> some might say I mean he, he didn't actually kill anyone himself it was just those people who followed his ideas so can we say that he was an evil man he never killed anybody just these ideas the ad hominem attacks tries to discredit the argument of a person by attacking not the argument, but the person. Hitler believed in state-run socialized daycare, so therefore state-run socialized daycare is bad. Hitler loved dogs, therefore anyone who loves dogs is as evil as Hitler. Absurd, obviously. Attacking the person or passing moral judgment on a person does not properly refute his arguments or ideas. But that does not mean that we should never call a person evil or, for that matter, call a person good. There are a number of parameters one has to consider before passing judgment on the character of a person. And I have a, a list of them here. Let's take a, the moral judgment of evil, for example. One of the parameters is frequency. Does this person hold evil ideas all the time? Or has he just said it once? For example, I'm sure that Hitler, to continue to use him as our example, had many good thoughts and espoused many good ideas, though I'm not aware of any. But I'm sure he did. Does that mitigate his otherwise evil nature? Well, he was anti-communist. 
That's true. There you there go. You go. We're, we're on the same side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Degree. Does the person hold evil positions or just really bad positions? For example, does he think uh, non-Aryans should be killed or just exiled? Duration. Has the person espoused evil ideas all of his life or just recently? For example, she was such a nice neighbor, always said hi to me on the street, and an, a, an upstanding pillar of the community. I don't know what made her drown her children. So that's just that one act. Is she evil because of that one act when she was so good all this other time? Intent, another parameter of casting moral judgment. Did the person intend for his ideas to have the consequences they did? For example, when Hitler maligned the Jews in Mein Kampf, did he foresee the consequences of his hatred? I think he did. Notoriety. Is the person a private person who tells you his opinions in confidence? Or is he a public persona, a politician, a writer, an artist, a teacher? Maybe a radio show host. For example, your dear friend, the postman, lets slip that he wishes that the country would be better off without the Jews. Or your dear friend, the Minister of External Affairs, lets slip that the country would be better off without the Jews. <laughs> you know, which is more evil than the other? Flexibility. Is the person willing to change his opinions if presented with better evidence or more rational argument? For example, my member of parliament was in favor of the death penalty death penalty until he was presented with figures showing that many people on death row had been subsequently found not guilty on DNA evidence which wasn't available when they were originally convicted. In the case of Adolf Hitler, we can be fairly certain that to label the man as evil is appropriate. That is not to say that his ideas are evil because he was evil, but because he was evil because his ideas and actions were evil. In their frequency, degree, duration, intent, and he publicized his idea with the purpose expressly of convincing others of their validity. Likewise, once we've properly refuted the ideas and actions using evidence and reason, we can use the pejorative to attack the person who holds the ideas safe in our conviction that such a person is deserving of our moral condemnation. What did Paul McKeever call, Bob? Blame the sinner. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't just have... Once you've taken on the ideas, it's, it's quite acceptable, I think, to say, like, you are responsible for this. You are wrong. Well, you are was, bad. He was kind of getting at the point, we have to think that it's not, like, socialism that's destroying us. It's socialists. Yes, people are doing Because they support that idea. Yes. Um, I, I can see that to a point, but the idea has to be attacked, I think, first, because that's... That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Once you have established that the ideas are wrong, then it's quite acceptable to point a finger of blame at a person. Consider the fact that uh, many of us, I do not exclude myself in this, have held beliefs which were based on false information or false in their reasoning or their conclusions. Does this make us targets of the ad hominem attack? Not so much. It, it makes us fallible. What makes us... Uh, what matters is if... When it means presented, we, were, we were wrong or, or acting immorally at the time, plain and yes. simple. Does it mean necessarily that we were evil? That's right. What matters is if, when presented with a valid argument to change our minds or new evidence from which to draw a different conclusion, do we do the honorable thing and admit our error and correct our ideas? That's important. If so, then we leave a good reputation intact. If not, then we contribute to that list of parameters which, when taken in the aggregate, sum up our nature as being a target of an ad hominem attack. It may be acceptable to call a good friend an idiot for spouting an ill-conceived idea, 
as long as we realize that it is out of character and that he will probably change his mind if presented with either better evidence or a better idea. In which case, you could call him an honorable uh, man for changing his mind and accepting a more reasonable position. Likewise, it's perfectly acceptable for us to pass moral judgment on public figures who continually espouse opinions which have damaging effects and to identify them as idiots, buffoons, nincompoops, charlatans, whatever, once we have legitimately refuted their position using evidence, logic, and reason. Now, having considered all of the parameters and given the benefit, giving him the benefit of the doubt, I would like to conclude by saying... President Obama is an evil asshat. <laughs> there you go. Justifiable. Okay. Would you agree, Bob? <laughs> I'm not sure what that <laughs> word means, but it, it's difficult. I think he is. He's evil. It's hard to it's hard to imagine that he doesn't know the consequences of his actions. Exactly. And from the very beginning, I, I'm sorry, I have not considered him a real president. I almost consider him an enemy of the country. He is uh, indeed an enemy of the United States. Uh, I uh, I can't think of him in any other way, and that's why I don't talk about him too much. He passes all those parameters I went through. The duration, he's, he's not willing to change his mind when better evidence is uh, available, for example, with capitalism or proper insurance. Well, even before he's done as all of his life, his ideas are evil and have proven to be uh, detrimental to people's health and well-being and freedom. So, yeah, the man is an evil asset. No <laughs> set. Well, that's enough set for both of us for this week. We've got to go for another week. So join us again next week when, when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and, of course, be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Oh, Field Marshal Von Leiter, happy birthday, sir. How nice to see you again. Because I, I can't tell you how many times I've thought of the wonderful holidays I spent at your summer place in Dinklager. Yes, I remember the time you said to me, Eric Schofstein, the army is the only career for a young man. I see you took my advice. Advice, sir? I thought it was an order. <laughs>